is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, April 14th, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana, where yesterday it snowed three inches. (laughs) (laughs) Taylor Schwenk is working from the Schwenk Studios back in Bristol. Uh, The big question is, where is Sarah Abbott? who is not on the podcast today because, of course, as she's talked about, she went and saw the Taylor Swift concert last night. Have you checked the police blogs this morning? Have we have any information on the whereabouts of Sarah Abbott, uh, Taylor? There was proof of life last night on her Instagram story at the concert, but uh, I I feel like it's one of those things where it was so emotional for her that she's going to be, like, sleeping for, like, 14 hours or something. Like, she's she's dead to the world. Oh, I thought you were going to say 14 days. Possible, too. She might never come back. We don't know, Buster. Oh, my God, the stories that she's going to have. Oh, yeah, I can't wait for Monday. All right, not far from where Taylor Swift performed, where Sarah Abbott is someplace, the Tampa Bay Rays carried a 12-game winning streak into their game against the Red Sox on Thursday. The Red Sox had a 3-1 lead, but then the Rays rallied in the bottom of the fifth. Manny Margot was sent to the plate with a pinch-hitting appearance with the score at that time 5-3. Now Margot puts down the bump. The throw, no throw to first. The run scores. He caught everybody by surprise and bunks the run home. And the Rays take a 5-3 lead. How about that? How about that? Dwayne Stats on the Rays television network. Taylor, I don't know if you're watching at that moment, but it was like, oh, my God, everything is going perfectly for this team. Yes? Oh, my God. <laughs> that was an incredible play. Yeah, he, he caught them all sleeping. You don't see a lot of that either. So for it to just work to perfection uh, shows what kind of role they're on. That rally continued. Harold Ramirez at the plate. And now here's Ramirez with the first pitch. Swing and a ground ball, a long third fair ball down the left field line. And here they come. A Rosarena scores. Franco scores. Here comes Margot to the plate, and he scores. A three-run double for Harold Ramirez, and it's 8-3 to three Rays. And, of course, at that point, the game was basically over. That sound, by the way, from 620 WDAE. Here was the final call. There's a swing and a high drive into right center field. This should do it to his left. Manuel Margot is there. Would you believe 13-0 to start the year? The Tampa Bay Rays have swept the Boston Red Sox four in a row, and they tie a major league record by starting the new season. 13 wins in a row. Absolutely insane. Harold Ramirez spoke with Bally Sports Sun right after the game about being 13-0. 13 and 0. How relentless has this team been and what's been the key to making history? That's a very good history for us. I feel excited to be on this team and we have to keep going. We have to keep play hard. We have to keep doing our job. That's awesome. All right. The Pirates played the Cardinals yesterday and in the top of the eighth inning with a 3-0 lead, they went back to back. Drive to left field by Connor Joe. Clear the deck. Cannonball coming. Connor Joe hits home run number one as a bucko here at Bush Stadium and gives the Pirates a 3 0 lead in the eighth inning. Castro sends one high and deep out to left center field. This ball is deep. Burleson back. O'Neill's back. O'Neill running out of room. And there it goes. Back to back home runs for the Pirates. Rodolfo Castro sends one out. And the Pirates lead 4 to nothing in St. Louis. Let me see those swords. 
<laughs> in reference, of course, to the uh, dugout celebration that the Pirates have adopted this week. That from Sports Radio 93.7, the fan, the final score there was 5-0. Vince Velasquez went six scoreless innings. Pittsburgh is 8-5, and and the Cardinals are now 5-8, and and they're four and a half games out of first place. Since our last podcast on Wednesday, some injury news. The Rangers shortstop Corey Seager is going to miss at least four weeks because he suffered a grade two strain of his hamstring in Tuesday night's game. The Twins' Kyle Farmer needed oral surgery after getting that 92-mile-an-hour fastball right to his face. Uh, he, it was uh, Oral surgery was required to realign four teeth and repair a laceration around his jaw. Jeff Passan reported the other day that a group from Salt Lake is joining the race for the expansion teams whenever that happens. And that's not going to happen really until after the ballpark situations with the Rays and the athletics are settled. Uh, Brave shortstop Orlando Arcia went on the injured list because of a microfracture in his left wrist. He, of course, had gotten off to a great start for the Braves this year. So this is a frustrating injury for Atlanta early in the season. Uh, in that loss, by the way, I didn't mention this, that the Cardinals had Jordan Walker's 12-game hitting streak uh, came to an end. He was 0-4 with two strikeouts against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Twins, Yankees yesterday. Johnny Brito on the mound for the Yankees coming off two excellent starts. Well, you know what? It was ugly right from the get-go. And the old two pitch, a swing to fly ball, center field deep. Judge going back on the track at the wall, jumps up, and that's gone. The 1-1 pitch, a high fly ball to left field towards the corner. Cordero measuring at the wall, and it's gone! Stretch and the 2-2 pitch, fly ball, right center field, that's hit a ton. Back it goes, deep it goes, and gone! The Twins have hit three straight home runs! Taylor, Julian, Correa, 9-0 here in the Bronx, still in the first inning. Three straight home runs, back to back to back, with two out here in the Bronx. Taylor, Julian, Correa. Treasure Island Baseball Network with that call. Yeah, nine runs in the first inning and the Twins roll from there. A crazy game at the end of a crazy series in Camden Yards this week. The Orioles and the Athletics. Taylor, I know you're all over this. This is what happened in the bottom of the ninth inning. Adley Rutschman at the plate. The score tied 7-all. Rutschman slams it. Deep right field. This is headed towards the bleachers. And it's gone. And it's a walk-off. The punctuation mark on the Orioles' first homestand. Adley Rutschman sends the Orioles fans home happy. That from WBAL. Taylor, what'd you think? Buster, Adley Rutschman is now my father. It's official. (laughs) My dad's dead, so he he won't be offended for me saying that. So uh, Adley Rutschman, now my father. Official, everyone. um, Just want to let you know. Yeah, you you know, just as someone who has a stepdad, just call him your stepdad. Okay, okay. He's my stepdad. You know? Yeah. Just- there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, last night, the Brewers and the Padres started a series out in San Diego. The Brewers win this game with help from Rowdy Telez. Garcia's 2-1. Hit on a line in the right field. Backing up is Azokar. Back onto the warning track. Azokar made the catch. Plenty deep enough to get the runner home. Yelich tags and scores. And Adamas over to third base on the sacrifice fly by Rowdy Telez. The Brewers are back in front. It is 4-3 in the 10th. 
and they are now nine and four. Crazy. All right. Uh, on this show today, we've got a great show coming up. We're going to be talking with Carl Ravitch about a cool thing that's going to happen on Sunday Night Baseball this week. Sarah Langs is going to join us to play the numbers game in Paul Embikides in just a moment. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, the Dominic Foxworth show, two episodes this week. One of them, Dominique and uh, Charlie, his co-hosts, they set the record straight on Odo Beckham Jr. signing a one-year deal with the Ravens. And what it means for Lamar Jackson and after that, Derrick Henry to the Cowboys sparks a larger conversation surrounding running backs and the draft, the Dominique Foxworth show. You can listen to that wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. And also, Buster, we've never, we haven't talked about this. It's Jackie Robinson Day this weekend. I went to the Jackie Robinson Museum last week. Um, I don't know how this did not come up in our conversations, but it was a, it's a great museum. It's a, I would highly recommend it if you're in the New York area, um, especially this weekend. I'm sure they're doing something uh, interesting and fun for it. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Hembo, of course, is Paul Ambikides, a researcher at ESPN who's known forever on the show as the forgotten one. He's also the author, one of the authors, he and Mike Greenberg, of the new book, Got Your Number. Hembo, how's the book promotion going so far? It was pretty tiring for a couple weeks there, Buster, but we've kind of made it through that part of it. Obviously, it's sort of a necessary evil. And we wound up uh, number six on the New York Times bestseller list, which was uh, an extraordinary thing for us. We didn't really have the expectation that we would get on. So not only getting on, but being as high as we were was something that we were obviously blown away by earlier this week. So thanks to you and many others who have helped us pump the book, support the book. And my hope is that uh, people enjoy uh, reading as much, reading it as much as we enjoyed writing it and researching it. And so it's been, it's been, the, I mean, it's the first time in my life I've ever done anything like it. But so far, so good. And I'm exceedingly happy that we were able to crack that list. That was a wonderful thing. For All right, Hembo, pro tip. When you have a new book coming out and you're on the New York Times bestseller list, never talk about it being tiring. It's like a, a major league player complaining about the, the five-star rena, you know, uh, accommodations at a hotel. Are you hearing me? Yes, those, you're exactly right. I don't have go, this is awesome. This is right. great. We are flying yeah, through this. You know, the questions, every question I get asked in the book promotion is completely unique and it's an amazing experience. I just had to go on Good Morning America last week. I had to wake up early on Friday morning. It was such a drag. Right, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of that, here was you and Mike Greenberg on Good Morning America. And what was it, 27, Hembo, that you had the most difficult time deciding? 21. 21. Was the number that we had the most difficult time deciding because Roberto Clemente wore the number 21. Deion Sanders wore the number 21. Tim Duncan 
wore the number 21, amongst many others. That was perhaps the most difficult choice we had to make because each a legend in their respective sport. Greeny, want to give it away? We chose Roberto Clemente because of his historical significance. I think Roberto Clemente is one of the five most important people in baseball history. Baseball's humanitarian award every year is called the Roberto Clemente Award. So while all of them, I think, were equally great players, we decided Clemente was the greatest legend. So how difficult was it for you to not get shoved out of the way by Greeny when there's a microphone around, when there's a camera around? <laughs> yeah, I, I was able to, to get a word in on occasion. But I have to say, Buster, before there was Good Morning America, before there was Get Up, before there was anything else, there was the Baseball Tonight podcast. And for as much as I enjoy the glitz and glamour, dressing up, wearing a tie, you know, doing, you know wearing makeup, I was literally wearing makeup during this interview. There is truly nothing that I enjoy more than talking baseball with you every single week. And so this is where it began, and that is something for which I will never forget. All right. Uh, I appreciate that. Well, this weekend, of course, Jackie Robinson Day. Uh, tell me sort of what jumps to mind about Jackie Robinson for you. Something that uh, – some story, some anecdote, uh, you know, some situation, uh, you know, something that you as a, a baseball historian have always uh, clung to. Yeah, so I, I think – the best way to present Jackie Robinson for me is always based upon two pillars. One is is obvious and everyone understands, and that is the cultural and historical significance. It is my belief that the day on which he broke baseball's color barrier is on the top five list of the most important things that have ever happened on North American soil. I mean, I truly believe that the cultural impact that moment had has changed our country for the better to an order of magnitude that is so difficult to describe. And maybe someone else would have eventually come along to do it. But he was preordained by the cosmos to do that. And it is my belief that Jackie Robinson, as a result, is as important a, a figure as this country has ever had in the world of sports or otherwise, in all candor. And so that obviously is in one bucket. The second, though, Buster, is the fact that Jackie Robinson was one of the greatest baseball players to ever live and is one of the greatest uh, athletes that our nation has ever produced. He could have played professionally in almost any sport that he wanted to, obviously electing to play baseball and wound up going from being baseball being his fifth, sixth, or seventh best sport to the best player in the National League within a couple of years. And you might recall, like, Jackie, Jackie Robinson was not even necessarily considered this, like, generational baseball player when he was coming up through the minor leagues. Like, he was not even necessarily always the first choice by Brand Tricky or others to do this. It was a combination of his skill and the combination of his character that sort of made him the perfect person. But those are the two things that stand, like, obviously make him stand out as much as any person that has ever uh, touched the uh, sporting landscape in the history of our country. Yeah, I'm glad you put it within that context, uh, within the country, not just within baseball history. There are times when people will say, you know, it's one of the most important moments in baseball history. And it kind of makes me cringe a little bit because it goes way beyond that. Uh, my Jackie Robinson connection, uh, for lack of a better way of describing it, and I'm sure I've told you this story before, at 11 years old, getting to go to a playoff game in 1975 at Fenway Park, uh, using tickets that were arranged by a friend of my uncle, Pee Wee Reese, who worked for Louisville Slugger, and sitting next to him during the course of that entire game. And I have no memory of asking about Jackie Robinson, but of course, me now older, wishes I had done that. It wishes that I had taken something away, but I've got his autograph uh, over here, uh, Pee Wee Reese, from that game. So that wow. you was know, something... Uh, uh, will always stick with me. All right, wow. let's dive into the Tampa Bay Rays early season success. I was on SportsCenter last night and badly described the fact that uh, you just don't see this level of dominance from a team in Major League Baseball where you've got a, uh, the Rays are winning by an average of five and a half runs per game. They asked me a follow-up question to describing the level of dominance 
about the secret to the Rays' success. What do you got? The secret to the Rays' success isn't much of a secret at all. They occupy another planet in the area of scouting and player development. So there are all sorts of really cool notes floating around right now as to the context behind their incredible first two weeks of the season. But what I want to do is go beneath the iceberg, right? But, but like to, to go beneath the water and show you kind of the way that they became this incredible team. So I lumped everybody's minor league teams across uh, the big leagues and sort of grouped it by collective organizational record. These are the Rays' ranks in the last four years across the minor leagues. Just their records. Very simple. First, first, second, and first. Over those four years, Buster, the Rays have won 570 more games than they have lost across the minor leagues. That is obviously incredibly impressive on two fronts. The first of which is obvious. They develop players better than anybody. They just do. And that is evidence not only in what's happening in the big league club right now, but by their farm system and the enormous success that they enjoy there. The second, though, Buster, is the culture. Like, they they create an expectation from the time that you're 18 years old. And they set a standard from such a young age that you're going to win your league from the time you're 18 to the time we reach the big leagues. And then when we get there, despite the fact that we're going to pay all of our people less than the Mets are going to pay Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander combined, it is our expectation that we're going to win there, too. What happens beneath the water in Tampa Bay is an extraordinary thing. And while we can enjoy what's happening in the big leagues, obviously, you and I both know. That their minor league system, their their farm system, their player development, their scouting machine is as good as anybody in the sport, and then some. I would love to know, because the feedback I get from folks with other teams is always about the incredible athleticism that the, the Rays seem to find in individual players. Even guys who might not look the part. You know, they have particular athletic skills that the Rays find a way to augment. I would love to know if... Within the organization, that the, the source of that information is broadly known, or if the the central part of the front office, Eric Neander, you know, uh, his general manager, if they keep that information locked away, kind of like the formula to Coke, right? Yeah, where <laughs> they, they they do a great job because other teams raid the Rays every off season, hire them, look to grab guys from the organization, but you wonder if the the formula that the Rays have. Uh, in terms of identifying great athletes, is really truly known by people outside the organization. That's a great point. I mean, obviously, Andrew Friedman went to, to Los Angeles. Hein Bloom went to Boston. They, they've been able to bring a lot of that or some of that to some to a degree, much less so in Boston, obviously. It's very difficult to keep things a secret, though, in baseball, given how much turnover there is. And that's why I wanted to make sure I used the word development. Like, they obviously have that in place. Like, they get the most out of their people. That's obviously in part scouting. But their player development staff and the analytics staff and the and their and their nutritionists and, and their sports medicine people, like all those people, I think play as big a role in anything else. I'm not sure there's really a secret behind it. It might just be that they do their thing better than you do your thing. And over the course of time, no matter how much they're paying or not paying their big league club, it manifests in the standings. So my favorite number, and I think you, you'll back me up on this. You might co-sign on this number. Early season number on the Rays is they've hit 32 home runs. And they've allowed six. Brandon Lau has five homers. The Rays have allowed six homers as a staff. Those numbers, Hembo, in Major League Baseball are impossible. Like maybe the Maroons did that back in 1884, but you do not see those type of, you know, that type of split in Major League Baseball. As bad as the Athletics are, as bad as the Tigers are, you know, the split between the best and the worst is never that pronounced. No, 100%. Nothing has aggravated me more than people that have poo-pooed on the Rays 
first two weeks of the season based upon their quality of opponent. They're playing big league clubs. Okay, this isn't this isn't the dream team playing Belarus in in a friendly overseas. These are major league baseball teams, and they're beating all of them by an average of five runs, like you said. The Rays aren't thirteen and zero with a with a run differential of plus eighteen. No, they're destroying everybody. I'm not surprised that they've pitched. I told you a few weeks ago. I thought this might yeah. be the best staff they've ever had. I am surprised that the lineup has been this good. Obviously, they can't keep this kind of pace up, but you build this much ground early in the standings. Recent history says, at minimum, you're likely to win your division. All right, I'm going to put you on the clock. we got four more topics to get through. Uh, the most improved players in baseball. Yeah, I'm going to give you two. The first is Jared Kelnick. We've already always known that his contact quality is off the charts, and he's always hit the snot out of the ball. But I'm most imp- uh, impressed with his improved approach this year. Right now, he's averaging more than four pitches per plate appearance for the first time in his career, and he's reaching three ball counts far and away at the highest rate of his career. So he's really doing what he does best. He's having a lot more patience within the at-bat and enabling him to destroy fastballs in the strike zone when he gets them. The second player, the second most improved player in baseball is Glaber Torres. Everything is sharper. Everything is crisper. That fateful hole in a swing buster, if it's not gone, it's a lot smaller now. His swing and miss rate is down all the way to 19%. All right, his average launch angle has been reduced a lot. You're seeing fewer pop-ups. You're seeing f- uh, fewer lazy flyouts. This is also a sentence I never thought I would utter. Gleyber Torres leads the American League in walks. Like he is putting wow. things together right now in such a way that really surprises me. He's still only 26. His best year was at 23. He's a really good example that not all player progression is linear. I think there's a real chance that Gleyber Torres gets some down ballot MVP votes based upon some of the early returns and some of the process-based stuff that we've seen. And you know as well as I do that that particular skill of commanding the strike zone for hitters is something that usually doesn't change a lot during careers. Power might change, batting average might change, but you know what? Drawing walks is not something, uh, patience at the plate is not something that typically changes. Uh, In how many more days? Another week, the Padres will have Fernando Tatis Jr. back. Uh, I'm working on a story on what the ideal Padres lineup should be when that happens. What do you think? I'm going to give you my ideal top four based upon some numbers and based upon some feel. So to give our listeners a peek behind the curtain, a few days ago you emailed me and asked about Manny Machado and the importance of lineup protection for him. Generally speaking, like this is something that you'll find in the far corners of the internet that I frequent. It's not commonly accepted that lineup protection in baseball is a real thing on balance. But I, I do steadfastly believe that when it comes down to individual players, anecdotal examples, it can make an enormous difference. And what the numbers say is that if Manny Machado has a hitter behind him with some presence, think about Josh Bell last year after they traded for him, just merely being able to have a guy hit behind you that can go yard, that pitchers are going to pitch around, for whom you might see some more fastballs become because that person is sitting behind you in the lineup. Here's what I think the Padres should do. If I, if I were made their manager, I'm leading off Fernando Tatis because I want to maximize his plate appearances. He gets on base plenty and he runs exceptionally well. I want to hit Juan Soto too, because over the course of time, that's where you want to hit your best hitter. It is my belief that he is their best hitter. And I want a left-handed hitter hitting behind Fernando Tatis with those open holes in right, in, in, in the, in right field. Obviously, uh, in a shiftless world, I think him pulling the baseball with Fernando Tatis on base gives you all those first to third opportunities. I'm hitting Manny Machado third, in part because of the lineup protection note that I just gave you. And I'm hitting Xander Bogart's fourth, because even though he's not your traditional cleanup hitter slugger type, Buster, he makes so much contact, yep. and there's going to be so many people on base. 
And in that big ballpark, he's going to spray the ball around constantly. He's rarely going to come up in those circumstances with no one on base. He's, he, he could go weeks without coming up to the plate um, and the pitcher going out of the windup. I mean, that's that's how good that lineup is in front of him. And he's going to spray the ball around, and you're going to have very few empty at-bats. So I say Tatis, Soto, Machado, and Bogarts. I would go that way too, but I will hmm. tell you that after you know researching this article, it's going to go uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., then Machado hitting second, then Soto hitting third, and Bogarts hitting fourth. And if you want to know why, you're going to have to read the article. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we heard earlier this week that Bryce Harper has volunteered to play first base. The quote from Rob Thompson, the Phillies manager, was, I'm not sure how long it will take. Uh, he apparently went to Dave Dombrowski, according to The Athletic, and said he's willing to do that. I got to tell you, uh, Hembo, that when I first heard this, I was like, no way. Like a guy coming back from Tommy John surgery is going to go to first base and make throws that he's never really done before in, in different angles. And now Bryce Harper, you and I know this, he was a catcher when he was young. So he's done some of the short arm stuff during his lifetime. But in his first year back from Tommy John surgery, kind of made me cringe a little bit. What do you think? This is going to surprise you because I see it. I see it differently. Okay. Not only do I believe that this is the best thing for the Phillies and for Bryce Harper in the short term, I think this is where Bryce Harper should spend the second half of his, of his career, Buster. I really do. I think Bryce Harper should become a first baseman. Let me try and sort of uh, sell you on this. We've seen, first of all, we've seen other legendary players do it before. We saw Harmon yeah. Killebrew do this. We saw Carl, hey, Carl Yasinski. Do this. Musial did it too. So like this is this like this is where you go late in your career, and it has been proven that you can do it fairly easily. There's it's obviously where that legendary. Derek Jeter should have gone, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, he should have done that in his twenties, but we'll talk about that later. Um, uh, the um, there's that legendary scene in Moneyball where like Brad Pitt says, oh, "Playing first base isn't hard," and the scouts go says, "It's incredibly hard." No, playing first base is not hard, and there's been a durable like pl- plenty of plenty of research studies and plenty of examples of players moving there and thriving. And there's no obvious reason that Bryce Harper won't be able to do the same, based in part because of his, his of his experience as a catcher. He has all the movement skills, but if you're thinking big picture now, right now the Phillies have Nick Castellanos and Kyle Schwarber playing uh, the you know, corner outfields, which is really the only place that they can or should play. And in Harper's case, he's the most important person in the organization coming off elbow surgery, right? I don't want him airing the ball out in right field. And that was really his biggest strength as an outfielder. He was never a go-get-it guy out there. His biggest strength was always his ability to throw. Yep. It is my belief that Bryce Harper in, at first base not only does goes a long way in sort of preserving his arm, preserving his legs, and keeping him healthy, it also works really well with the Phillies' current roster, too. So, look, for him to do this on the fly this season might be a bit of a stretch. But you mentioned, and I mentioned some legendary players that have pulled this out over the course of time. It's not obvious to me that Bryce Harper should not be a, uh, a first baseman moving into his 30s. Yeah, I think that next year that would make sense to me. I just wonder about as he returns to action, making a bunch of throws that he hasn't before, mm-hmm. especially with these new stolen base rules that you have. Uh, he's going to be throwing from funky angles. I think that if I were the Phillies staff, I would tell him, look, Bryce, we'll work with you at first base. But just as you might pull up from the outfield wall and protect yourself in those situations, please don't cut the ball loose, right? If you have an opportunity to throw a guy out at second base, keep it measured. Don't just cut loose, you know, in your first months after coming back from such significant surgery. All right, last one uh, before you go. Michael W. Connolly sent in this bleacher tweet, and he wrote to me, you were knocking the Phillies for Brandon Marsh, Logan O'Hop trade. 
But uh, Brandon Marsh is a 1280 OPS with two homers and eight RBI. And the Phillies have Real Muto at catcher. This looks like both teams did well. And I noted back, like, I didn't say that. That was Hembo banging on the Phillies for that. That's right. That's exactly right. So right now, it looks like this was a win-win because Brandon Marsh has played well with the Phillies and Logan O'Hoppy cracked the opening day roster for the Angels and looks like he's going to be a big-time player. Just as, as a quick overview, this is how I felt then and this is how I still feel now. Logan O'Hoppy is a player with a premium skill. He's a, he's a catcher who can hit 30 home runs in the big leagues and I think his track record in the minor leagues has suggested as much. That's a premium player. Brandon Marsh is not. Brandon Marsh is a good player. Brandon Marsh is a, is, a, is a role player. Brandon Marsh isn't going to be the reason you win a championship or don't, though. Brandon Marsh is a cog in the wheel. It is my belief that Logan O'Hoppy could be a lot more than that. And even though he was blocked by JT Real Muto, doesn't mean that you should trade him for 60 cents on the dollar, which in my judgment they did. Now, so far, Kevin Long has gotten a lot out of Brandon Marsh that the Angels did not. He can go get it in center field. He can run reasonably well. And right now, all of his process-based stats are great. But I think Ohapi is going to produce a lot more value over the course of their, say, rookie deals, if you will, you know, until they until they reach free agency than Brandon Marsh will. And because of that, I think that trade's going to wind up going down as as one that the Angels win. Grant you, Real Mutu is your catcher, and that's the guy that you want. But you shouldn't trade a premium player at the trade deadline to plug a need unless you're getting a premium player in return. And it's my belief that the Phillies did not get one. All right, Hembo. Uh, you know, rest up over the weekend from that grueling book tour. <laughs> you got it, man. I'll tell Michael Strahan and Robin Roberts you said hello. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick of Hembo. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing today? I'm doing great. I always lament when it's a Friday and the Cubs are on the road because we have no day games, but, you know, I can wait till 6 like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, you got to fill in the gap. There's no winter ball to help you through that, you know, five or six hour window, Sarah, when you don't have a baseball game to watch. Uh, I was just talking to Paul Embikides about Bryce Harper going to the front office and volunteering to play first base, uh, which you love. You get a superstar player basically telling the team, look, I'll do anything. I I told Hembo this. My first instinct was like, I don't know. First year after Tommy John surgery, going to a position he hadn't played before, making throws that he's not used to, to, to making. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily a great idea, idea this year. I wonder if Nick Castellanos going to first base might be a better option with Bryce in the outfield. What was your instinct when you heard this? I mean, my first reaction was, this is Bryce Harper. He will do anything to win. And you love to see that attitude, of course. But I do agree. I mean, I would be shocked if a guy coming off of a surgery like that would really end up playing a new defensive position. Uh, in that first year, I just think there are a lot of moving parts. And you worry about them. As you said, atypical throws, something you're not used to. And building up to that wall, building up strength seems dangerous. But I love the approach. I love that he said that. And I love that they're considering it because that's who Bryce Harper is. And it's really good to hear that even if it doesn't end up coming to uh, fruition. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is six. So, I mean, it's amazing. We're still here talking about the undefeated Tampa Bay Rays. So they have trailed at the end of just six of 117 innings this year. 
They are the third team all time to trail at the end of six or fewer of their first 117 innings of the season. Joining teams we've heard a lot about in the last few weeks now, the 1884 Gotham, who trailed at the end of six as well, and the 1884 Maroons, who did not trail at the end of any of their first 117. And I know a lot of people like to say, oh, that's not even real baseball. And I think I mentioned on Monday, it was obviously a very different game. In 1884, overhand pitching had just been legalized. The mound was much closer to home plate. But this is also what makes baseball amazing. We have this history. So even if it was a different game, I am always going to include the teams from 1884 because it is MLB history and no other sport is like this. Number two. Number two is 500. So entering the weekend, Luis Arise, reigning batting champ from the AL and, you know, very well respected hitter already in his young career, is hitting 500. So the Marlins played 13 games. He is the fifth guy to be hitting at least 500 in his team's first 13 games of the season in the wildcard era as a qualified hitter. The others were Ramon Hernandez in 2006, then Barry Bonds in 2004, Sandy Alomar in 1997, and Mike Piazza in 1995. And if he makes it through the weekend on Monday, I have a pretty fun list for guys to do this through at least 15 team games in the season. Number one. Number one is 11. So that is how many RBI Max Muncy had in the series for the Dodgers against the Giants this week. And by the way, he only started two of the games. So he had seven RBI, then he pinch hit in the second game, struck out, and then in the third game, he had a four RBI. So that is tied for the third most RBI in any three-game series in Dodgers history. The only guys to have more RBI in a three-game series for the Dodgers were Frank Howard against the Giants in 1962. He had 12. And Gil Hodges against the Reds in 1949. He also had 12. And Muncy has certainly become that guy who we just expect to do something against the division rival Giants. He's hit 25 home runs in exactly 75 games against the Giants to start his career. The only guy to hit more home runs in his first 75 games against the Giants was Gary Sheffield with 26. If you look at most home runs against any single opponent over the last few years, you basically have Judge against the Orioles and then Max Muncy. So it's amazing how automatic it's become. And uh, it's pretty fun to watch, though not for my mother, I suppose. (laughs) Well, and you knew if Max Muncy was going to break out of an early season slump, it was probably going to be the Giants 
who uh, against whom he would do the damage to to move forward. You mentioned that how the game is different. You know, people will say the game is different in 1884 than it is now. So how can you compare? Sarah, the game is different in 2010. The game was different in 2003 in the height of the steroid era. It's constantly it was different in 1968, right? The year of the pitcher before they uh, they lowered the mound. So I don't want to hear that. The part about the Rays that just blows me away is the level of dominance. And I get it. They're not playing great teams. You just don't see this. I mentioned to Hembo that my favorite number right now about the Rays and how great they are, they've hit 32 home runs and they've allowed six. Those numbers don't happen in baseball, Sarah. I mean, it's amazing. You know, through the 11th game in the series, they had hit 29 and allowed 20 runs total, which was the largest difference between home runs hit and runs allowed at the end of any day for any team in MLB history. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. You know, I went through and looked at the win probability last night in each of their games. They've only had two games where their win probability dipped below 30% at any point. They had that comeback in, I believe, Game 4 against the Nationals, where they scored five runs in the ninth. And then in the game yesterday, it looked like they were going to trail 3-1. All of that in that inning where it became 3-1 Red Sox, their win probability was about 24%. And then they scored seven runs in the bottom of the inning. They believe four games where their lowest win probability was the even 50% at the beginning of the game. I mean, it's just you know, wire-to-wire dominance. How about Manny Margot coming off the bench with a bases-loaded RBI bunt? Like, oh my gosh! <laughs> you know, I, I, I uh, it would be interesting to see the thought balloons over Kevin Cash and his staffers who know the numbers in that situation. They probably were thinking, "No, no, no! Nice play! Way to go!" <laughs> anyway, all right, Sarah, have a great weekend. We'll be talking with you. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. The NFL schedule drops this week, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit VividSeats.com today. That's VividSeats.com today, code BASEBALL. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. 
dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. After the Rays' victory on Thursday, Brandon Lau, who hit his fifth homer in that game, spoke with L. Duncan on 6 O'Clock Sports Center. Thank you so much for joining us, Brandon. 13 straight wins after rallying to beat the Red Sox today. How's your team viewing this historic start? Yeah, I mean, I think we're just we're just having fun. I don't think anybody's caught up in the numbers right now. We are strictly just showing up each day. You know, we understand what we're doing. We it's not lost on anybody the historic uh, impacts of it all. But you know, we're showing up to the ballpark each day, just understanding that you know today's a new day. It's a different game, and uh, don't focus on anything else but today. Certainly, I'd hope you're not feeling any pressure to win 162 straight games. It doesn't feel like a thing. But this is not a rags-to-riches story, Brandon. The Rays have been to the postseason four straight years. How, then, is this team differentiating itself early on? Honestly, it it feels just like a same team. I think this is, like, the first time that we haven't had a really large turnover of players in in the lineup and and on the roster. And so everybody's – already comfortable with each other and with last year everybody became a little bit more mature whether it's in their approach or what they want to do on the mound or whatnot and uh it's really paying off right now and i think everybody being so close lets you play that team baseball that you know gets the egos out of the way and lets you win all these ball games that we have certainly being healthy plays into that and i know last year brandon you were dealing with injuries and your stats reflected that you've already hit five home runs this year. How would you assess where you are physically at this point? I, I mean, I feel great. That's uh, that's pretty much all I can say about it. You know, it's going through the injuries last year. It sucked. It was one of the worst times to to be injured. But you know, I got to understand and learn a little bit more of the game. You know, I got to sit back as a third party and and not have any uh, any worries about getting out or striking out or anything like that. So I got to learn more about myself and more about, you know, what I should be doing at the plate. And, you know, I got to, to be a part of the, the pregnancy journey with my wife. So, you know, it's all things really happen for a reason. And, you know, I'm glad to, glad to have shown up healthy now. Yeah, that's such a silver linings way to look at it. More time with your family that you could never get back. Speaking of, of injury, you're winning these games without one of your key pieces on the bump. Tyler Glass now still has not even played. What does that say about the outlook for this team? Uh, it just shows us how good that, that we can really be. You know, we we obviously you missed Glass now, but it, it shows you how deep this this roster really is. You know, you can call guys up and they're going to fill in great. You know, Fleming has been incredible in that in that fifth starter role, and I think he's going to continue that that run until glass now gets there and then you know good problems to have you know what, what do you do if with glass what do you do with phlegm and then it's uh it's putting us in a pretty good position certainly in fact i i hear that the winning pitcher gets a shot of tequila and i'm just wondering brandon why the hitters are not involved in that ritual <laughs> uh hitters are we uh we we uh name a team mvp on both sides of the ball so we have a pitcher mvp and a in a position player MVP, I had to uh, up up the tequila game a little bit. Who who, who uh, got it today? Who got it today for you on the hitter side? Harold. Okay. Harold Harold got it for us without a doubt. There's no question in my mind for that one. I think that sounds like a great maybe addition to the All Star exhibition. Take a couple shots, see how hard you can hit it. How many times have you gotten it, by the way, with your five home runs? I, I think I've only gotten it once. Okay. Uh, the home run to, to go ahead one nothing. That was the, the only day that I'd gotten it. And 
I am more than okay with having to share that love, you know, <laughs> as long as we keep hitting the way we are. <laughs> love that. And, and lastly, Brandon, before we let you go, listen, it's well documented there have been some challenges with fan attendance, but today, a day game at the Trop, and it was half filled. Are you hopeful that we could see a, a, a non-opening day sellout happen there in Tampa? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something that did surprise us a little bit. You know, we walked out there and we heard 22,000 or 20 plus thousand fans. We're like, wow, this is, this is really cool. And sure enough, in the seventh or eighth inning, you know, we're, we're up by a lot. The fans are still in it and it was an incredible environment to be in. It was, uh, their games are a little, a lot more fun when there's, there's people rooting for you. Absolutely. Maybe at the next sellout, we'll do like a fan night and everyone gets a tequila shot. That sounds like something that we could sell, yeah. right? Brandon, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Brandon Lau joining us there from the tarmac. Thanks so much for joining SportsCenter and good luck. Absolutely. Thank you. All aboard. It's the Rabby Train with Carl Ravage on Baseball Tonight. Carl Ravage, of course, the play-by-play man on Sunday Night Baseball. But because of schedule complications, last second, we need a pinch hitter. Taylor, you're going to be the guy. I'm I'm happy to step up. I wish we had the Ravenator here, but, uh, you know, the trains don't always run on time. That's just something you got to deal with in life. Well, exactly. And on top of that, uh, he, he might be busy for preparing for Sunday night when we're going to have a really cool feature, something that's never been seen in a regular season game before, uh, I'm so excited about this, Taylor. Martin Maldonado, the uh, respected veteran catcher for the Houston Astros, is going to wear a microphone for us while he's catching from Valdez against the Texas Rangers. So this is this is interesting because the whole thing with the position players wearing the microphone is you know you got the downtime, um, especially the outfielders. You know they're they're right. just they're kind of, they're doing a lot of hanging out. But what he's doing, he's active the entire time. So I, you said you had a, a call with him, you know, to, to set up the the logistics. Did he give any insight on how he's going? Thinks he's going to be able to balance these two roles he's going to play. Yes. Yeah, so uh, he, yeah, during our, we were on the Zoom call yesterday. We were talking about this and how it might work. And Eduardo Perez knows him really well. And he reached out to him and, and basically gave him the Zoom, uh, you know, our Zoom information. So we're talking and all of a sudden there's Martin Maldonado in the group. And he's telling us where he's going to wear the microphone on his chest protector, how that'll help, uh, you know, which side. He said, uh, I'm going to, he said he's going to turn up the volume on the pitchcom device he has so we can hear the pitches that are being called oh as buttons uh which would be kind of fun and then there's another thing they're talking about doing before the game we'll see if that actually happens it says a lot about him that mm-hmm. like the astros are fully aware that this is going on it says a lot about him and the respect that dusty baker has for him that uh, we're going to be able to do this did he volunteer for this? Is this a situation where like the Astros go to the clubhouse and say, who wants to do this? How did this uh, sort of come about? Well, he had mentioned to Eduardo, from what I understand, that, hey, this would be really cool to have a catcher do this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because of everything that's going on. But, you know, Mald- Maldonado is someone, if you talk to Martin, you can tell he can multitask. Like, there's a lot going on there, and he's fine. The other thing, too, is, like, Framber Valdez is the perfect pitcher to do this with because he's got that nasty sinker, and it's an easy default. You know, runners on base, throw the sinker because nobody can hit it anyway. Uh, I, I, it's going to be an, an amazing experience and a whole lot of fun. I can't wait for Sunday. So it turns out we don't need a pinch hitter. Carl Ravich, uh, you were on that call yesterday. How cool is it that Martin Maldonado joined us? 
that was a pretty impressive. Uh, good man. Again, it, it just kind of speaks to the connections that Eduardo Perez has with uh, so many of the baseball players. He calls them up and they call him back on off day for the Astros. This is going to be really, really unique. And um, I think we've all seen pushback on microphone players and earpiece players. Um, here's another opportunity for people to push back on, but also another opportunity for baseball fans to see something that they've never seen before, probably hear things they've never heard before. Martin Maldonado wearing a microphone and an earpiece is going to be something um, that I think is going to be as memorable as anything we do all year. Yep, uh, I 100% agree with you. Uh, what's the sense of how the rhythm of this is going to go, Ravi? In other words, when do you fit first? Because I'm sure we'll talk about it pregame. It's one of the more uh, cooler things that I've done on Sunday Night Baseball in 13 years. What's uh, How's this going to roll out? I tell you what, I, I think that this has to be driven by him for sure. Yep. Um, we're always sensitive to the player and all the things that they're doing and ball in play, in this case, ball thrown, in this case, pitch calm, in this case, he's got to – He's got to be focused when the ball is being delivered. You know, this is really going to be one of those things where I don't think you hear me or Eduardo very much. And if anybody is going to, in my opinion, ask any questions, it's got to be the pitcher, David Cohn. Um, that's that's the guy that you know, that has the relationship with the catcher. He can probably think along with Martin. So I don't see a lot of talking on our behalf. Um, foul ball, but that's Cohn. To me, this has got to be driven by the pitcher, David Cohn, more than anything. And I think he's looking forward to it. But, I, again, we're super hypersensitive to the responsibilities of the catcher that start you know, as soon as that, that pitch block starts, as soon as the ball is delivered to the pitcher. Yeah, and you could tell Martin was as excited about this as we are, you know, to, to have someone essentially come in and he can share with fans, uh, you know, what they're doing. All right, we, we talked a little bit about the Rays the part that's jumping out to me, Carl, about Tampa Bay so far is the level of dominance. You know, I meant, mentioned my favorite statistics so far this season. They've hit 32 home runs. They've allowed six, right? <laughs> These are numbers you just don't see. This is uh, average margin of victory, five and a half runs a game. People that have played them uh, suggest that the biggest difference this year between the Rays and years past is their offense, is their ability to hit the ball over the wall. Um, th there's a unique quality to the Rays uh, that you sure understand. They're all very, very young. They were all there last year. None of them are free agents at the end of this year. Um, and you, you see the pitching uh, continue to show people like Springs, et cetera, show up and be great. Fairbanks appears to be a legitimate great closer. But it's their offense. Um, you know, and another year for the Francos of the world to to hit and to hit the ball over the wall. That, that's the one aspect that's been, you know, lacking. Every time they get into the postseason, you wait for Randy or Rosarena to do something or Brandon Lau, and if they don't, then you're kind of like, well, where's the where is the offense coming from? They seem to have a, a whole bunch more players early this season that are that are getting the job done, hitting the ball over the wall. I, I know that's how opponents feel about them. Like my God, their offense is really deep, really strong, and, and because of their young uh, youth and athleticism, they take advantage of these rules. You know, I, I think we're going to see stolen bases increase dramatically as this season wears on, and they're going to be one of the teams doing it. I've mentioned, Carl, that their offense reminds me a little bit of the Giants a couple of years ago when they had a couple of core performances and Buster Posey and Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt. 
And then you had all these matchup guys, lefty-righty. That seems to be sort of what we're seeing with the Rays. Uh, and if they can stay healthy, the, uh, that'll be amazing. And I think you and I are on the same page in this, too. I know you and I are on the same page. We're hoping that Jeffrey Springs is okay. He's getting his elbow checked out later today. Uh, he goes to the injured list. Uh, I want to ask you, you know, since we were talking about the Rays dominating the Red Sox this week, uh, boy, it can get away from Boston so quickly this year. They're already eight games out of first place. Chris Sale, an 11-2-5 ERA, Carl. Buster, they're, you know, Alex Cora is really good, um, but they're a fifth-place team, you know, talent-wise. They, they just are. And I'm just not certain the direction that they took um, is ever going to reap the benefits that, that, that Ryan Bloom and his front office think it might. I, I, I just I don't see it. Maybe I'm wrong. And again, the same way you don't want to anoint the Rays World Series champions because of the competition they've played and how early it is, it's hard to imagine that that, that team has a lot of uh, long losing streaks in them. And by the same token, it's really hard to imagine that the Red Sox have a lot of long winning streaks in them. Um, they just don't match up with the Yankees. They don't match up with the Rays. They don't match up talent-wise with the Blue Jays. And I think the Orioles are ahead of them. So they're a fifth-place team to me, the way that they have played. And I've heard from some people that say we're better than we are. Well, again, that, that may be nice to say you are what your record says you are, and you've been destroyed you know, by these teams. It hasn't been close. Well, you and I are both products of New England, and I know this about this situation. Something is going to change if they, they continue on this trajectory. And I don't know what form that'll take. You know, you could theoretically try to make a big, bold trade that, you know, helps them moving forward. You could swap away some of the veterans. There could be other changes that happen in, within the organization. I don't know, but I know this. The Red Sox uh, fans, incredibly upset at the beginning of the year. I don't blame them. And again, you know, these are hard. You, do you ever watch Ted Lasso, Buster? Yes. <laughs> All right. So, so Ted Lasso's soccer team graduated to the Premier League in this season, they're now in the Premier League, and they're getting destroyed. And all of a sudden, they're starting to talk about, well, maybe we mean, may need to change the manager, who last year was so good they brought the team to the Premier League. Alex Corris won World Series. Alex Corris seemingly not the problem. Um, the players, the way this team is built is the problem. And I'm sure ownership is getting very frustrated, you know, with the promise of, Trust the direction we're going in, and then all of a sudden, the direction hasn't yielded any benefits at all. So, sure, there may be some changes, and oftentimes it's the manager who gets moved. That doesn't seem like it would be a smart play for me, but if Ted Lasso can can be dumped, Alex Cora can be dumped. <laughs> well, and there's no doubt, like, John Henry's ownership has been remarkably successful, I guess, especially when measured against the history of that franchise, four championships, uh, you know, starting in 2004, and yet they have veered dramatically with their front office folks, right? Theo Epstein was yes. the guy, and then he got pushed yep. out. And then they, you know, uh, had Ben Charrington come in, he had a distinct plan, and then he got shoved out. Then Dave Dombrowski comes in, distinct plan, he gets shoved out. Bloom comes in, you know, we'll see uh, how patient ownership is with the direction of the team. I'll say this, Buster. I will say this, that the guy that is managing would probably be a hell of a general manager. Oh, I, I agree. I think uh, if somehow the Red Sox were to move on past Alex Cora, he'd have a job within 0.2 seconds, just based on my conversations with, uh, with folks with other teams. Uh, this is what happened in the game in Toronto last night. Tigers playing the Blue Jays. 
This one to center. And Baez doesn't know how many outs there are. Another mistake by Javier Baez. Didn't get out of the box much on the double. Didn't really tag up last night from third, make any kind of effort on a fly ball. And I didn't know how many outs there were. Clearly thought there were two. Takes off as soon as it's hit. And A.J. Hinch can't be happy. This is A.J. Hinch saying to Javier Baez, come down the steps. Baez takes his hat off. I mean, he knows what this is about, obviously. Moments later, Baez comes up the steps. The seeds are gone. The shirt's untucked. And he... He's out of the game. Yeah, that was Dan Schulman on the Blue Jays television network. Javi Baez gets yanked from the game. It does feel like the Red Sox increasingly are powder keg. The Tigers increasingly a powder keg, which is why what A.J. Hinch last night, I felt like was totally appropriate. Carl, what would you think? Uh, Of course he was. Um, And look, the, the sheepish way that Baez went down the stairs, he knew. I screwed up not once, but twice. Of course he's... He's in the right to do that. And at some point, there's got to be an accountability. To your point, if there's sort of imploding going on with these teams, the one thing you have to do as a manager is maintain a level of accountability and discipline. And A.J. Hinch, of course he's right about that. And it's, Look, I'm not excusing it, but it's easy for players when your team stinks to kind of lose focus. It's just, it's just not acceptable. And you as a manager have to make sure that they know not acceptable. Either you're going to play and you're going to be invested or you're not going to play. We, we may lose the games, but we need players that are locked in here and invested. Of course, he's in the right. Baez would acknowledge it, I would think. And he did after the game, Carl. He basically said all the right things. The one thing, if I were friends with Javi Baez, I would tell him two things. One, that, that uh, the thing that he did when he cleared the seeds out of his back pocket, which felt really kind of petulant in the moment. He, like, flipped them out. Like, get past that. Two... It would have been better if he'd stayed in the dugout and been with his teammates the rest of the game, like, and essentially owned it in front of the teammates. You know what? I blew it. And I know that that's asking a lot of someone who's really competitive, but the guy is the highest paid player on the team other than Miguel Cabrera. I think he's got that responsibility as they try to turn this around. Yeah, look, I, I, that's where I was going to go next is when, when the highest paid player, and you've, you've heard this about both the guys that that give you the best effort and the guys that give you the lousy effort. Uh, If your best player, if your highest paid player is the one that works the hardest, the rest of the team generally follows suit. When your highest paid player is doing things like Javier Baez is doing, it it leads to the trickle-down effect on the rest of the players, especially the very young, impressionable players. And that's a a huge issue. And yes, there you know the, the I don't want to be a role model thing for athletes. That's one thing. The other thing is you know you are the highest paid player on the team. You are the role model for at the very least this organization. We invested in you. You better be invested in us. Yeah, and I hope that today and 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 you know assuming that this didn't happen after the game last night and assuming that you know Javi hadn't already decided to do this, I hope he addresses the players and say you know what I blew it. AJ's right. I got to be better as we go forward and as we as a team move forward. I, I hope he does that because he's that important to this team. That's why they, uh, you know, it's part of the responsibility that comes with getting that big contract. All right, this is what happened uh, in the game played by the Padres Triple A team last night. Give a listen. Swung on. High fly ball. Carrying in left. It's deep. Torrey Alba back. Gone! Three home runs. Eight RBIs for Fernando Tatis Jr. 
El Nino puts on a show in El Paso. Six days from now, Carl, he's going to be in the Padres lineup. And you and I were in the room the other day when you could see Bob Melvin's face light up with the idea of putting Fernando Tatis Jr. in the leadoff spot. Yeah, you know, they've been in, they're an interesting team so far, and it's been interesting to watch Soto play because this is, just feels like a different Juan Soto. And maybe when you get Tatis back, somehow it elevates his game because they're, they're really good, obviously, and when they get healthy and – Musgrove comes back, and they can get Suarez back, and they get Tatis back. It's a different team. It could be the best team in all of baseball. Uh, but but Soto's been a little different this year. We've seen swing and miss. And the Tatis edition, if Soto doesn't return to that form, I think he will. But if he doesn't, that, that's obviously going to mitigate the the lack of what we expect from Juan Soto. So, I, I, yeah, I, you're exactly right. He lit up. He's one of the best talents that we've seen in the game. He obviously cheated the game. He did it himself. He's paying the price for all of that stuff. So I agree with what Melvin is hoping for. The only caveat to it is you just hope when you wait so long and a guy comes back that they don't overdo it and he doesn't suffer some stupid injury early on. Let's kind of ease back into this thing and, and land the plane softly because the season just started. And when he plays... They're a way better team for sure. The word that uh, the Bob uses uh, used with us the other day was hurricane. Like he feels like Fernando in the leadoff spot is like a hurricane thrown at the other team. All right, sir. Uh, I will see you down in Houston. Look forward to it. Thanks, guys. Bleacher tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for Friday. What does that mean, Buster? Is it time? That means Taylor's rant. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! You know who's also mad as hell? My dog, who's tired of being stuck in this room with me while we do the podcast. <laughs> she's going to have to I wait a few... Oh, there she is. She's, she's not happy. Maybe some bacon will solve that. But while we're dealing with that, Buster, what kind of phone do you have? Uh, an iPhone iPhone. Okay. Uh, what are a couple, couple of like really basic things you use for with that phone? Texting and emails. Okay. Um, so let's, let's think about this. So, you, you know, you're, you're getting up in the morning. What's one of the first that you check your emails, yep. you check your texts, anything yep. else you do pretty early on in the day on your phone? Anything come to mind? No, no. They're okay. probably, as soon as you tell me, tell me what you got in mind. Okay, so let's env- let's envision a scenario here. It's not going to be hard because, you know, our listeners, have, this has played out for them, you know, probably hundreds of times at this point. You're waking up. Uh, let's say it's opening day. You know, you're getting ready to get up and go sling some Natty Bows at Pickles, eat a crab pretzel at Pratt Street Ale House, and you think to yourself, what's the weather out today? And you think, should I wear my soft homage sweatshirt? Should I wear my Under Armour quarter zip, my beloved Nick Marcakis jersey? You grab your phone, you open up the Apple weather app, and there's nothing, Buster. There's nothing showing you what the weather is on the weather app. (laughs) Have you experienced this? No, I haven't experienced that. I must tell you that I think just growing up in Vermont, you just kind of roll with the weather. I don't really look at the weather that much, but I know you do, and it's like a must-have. And so when you don't have access to that, that's going to make you mad. That's going to make you go on a rant. (laughs) 
Yeah. So what I've been experiencing recently, and I, I figured out that this isn't just a me thing, is when you open up the Apple weather app, instead of, uh, you know, the temperature, what, what, how many degrees outside it is, you just get two dashes in the little degree sign. Uh, so the most basic function of the Apple weather app, um, just doesn't work. And it's probably going to stay that way on your application for about 30 seconds, possibly forever until it loads. And I just can't wrap my brain around it, Buster. It, it, it has one job and it has failed at that job. And, you know, it, it must be one of the most used applications on the entire planet. And this app is horrific. And I, and I got to tell you what's really grinding my gears about all this. Have you ever heard of the Dark Sky app? I have heard of it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a couple of my siblings actually use that. Okay. Well, they don't use it anymore. And, and I and I don't say this lightly because the Dark Sky app, it was the goat of weather apps. My father-in-law, shout out Steve Goldberg, he uh, recommended it to me last few years uh, and it was life-changing. It was a great hour-by-hour forecast out there, an amazing Doppler with a great predictor function. Um, Love the interface. It was very easy to drop $4 on that because even at that time, a couple years ago, the Apple Weather app was already subpar. Well, Apple bought the Dark Sky app. And as of January 1st, the day the music died, the Dark Sky app was just no more. You opened it up and it was basically a blank screen. So you might think, Buster, you know, capitalism, you know, these larger companies, they, they buy something smaller, you know, in direct competition with them. They try and fold them together. Guess what Apple just didn't do? They didn't take anything useful from Dark Sky. They just continued on with their application. So they ate up their competitor, even though their competitor had a superior product. I just can't believe that they did this. You know, they could have just swapped the badge out and used their interface. So they didn't take any of the good stuff from the Dark Sky app and rolled into theirs. They kept it exactly the same. And now it doesn't even load. It doesn't even work. So they took the best weather app off the market you know, purportedly to roll into theirs. They didn't do that. And it doesn't even work anymore. So I don't really understand what's happening. Here's an insane thing I've done a couple times. It's let's remember it's the year 2023. You know, I I've been, you know, trying to get ready for the day. What's the weather? Oh, cool. The weather app, the one that's baked into my phone, the most widely used app, one of them on the planet, not working. I Googled what the weather would be for the day in 2023. (laughs) I know Dolly. That's crazy. That's absolutely well, crazy. Well, you know, one thing, and I'll give you just one piece of advice, something I learned growing up. You could also just open the door and stick your hand out and feel what the temperature is. That'll help with the temperature thing. I can't help you with the forecast and is there going to be rain or snow or, you know, maybe maybe someone will hear this rant, Taylor, and change the trajectory of your life. Yeah, uh, so I, that's a great idea, Buster. I'm also asking the listeners if they have any better uh, options for weather apps out there. Um, I'm a, I'm a reasonable person, Buster. I'm not asking for much. Just that a uh, a functioning weather app, you know, do it for the baseball fans who want to check the weather before you know going to a game or just leaving the house generally. Um, and also, what the hell is up with the stupid hour by hour temperature graph? This isn't statistics class. Just give me the time and the projected temperature. That's it. This thing is useless. All right. All right. Let's go to the tweets. All right. On to the tweets. Uh, The starting block at the starting block writes, uh, this was on Tuesday night. What will happen first? Jordan Walker won't get a hit or the Rays will lose a game. Jordan Walker 0 for 4 last night. Yep. Well, uh, the Rays answered that question for you, starting block. All righty. Zach Beeson at Zach Beeson 22 writes, and Buster, what are the Twins doing that the Guardians are not to lead the AL Central? 
Well, their pitching has been absurdly good early in the year, and we'll see if they continue that. Uh, I know when I was around the Twins camp early on, there was confidence about how good the pitching would would be, especially backed by what was uh, an effort by the Twins front office to make the defense better. Andrew Campbell at Real Camp Drew writes, in talking home run celebrations, do you all remember the toe night show in New York with our old pal Ronald Torres and Aaron Judge? Instant classic. They had the shoebox camera and bat mic. It was a full production, but nothing beats the simple thumbs down Selly in 2017. Love the thumbs yeah, down. Todd Frazier. That was Todd Frazier. That was great. Uh, Reggie at Baseball Yoda Weather writes in baseball, keeps saying it would want to expand to 32 teams. My question with so many teams wanting in, why not 36? 36 is very doable. We went from 20 to 24 and 69. That's a 20% increase. That is what 30 to 36 is. I, he lays out a whole scheduling plan. I think it's just all about diluting the talent pool on the product. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I think they got to go slower than that. I do think two are, you know, two is perfect. Corey Rukert with the last one of the week. Corey writes in, adding Salt Lake City to Vegas, Portland, and Nashville as expansion spots is perfect. The A's uh, to Las Vegas. The Rays pick one of the other three. Two expansion teams remaining uh, in the other two, killing two birds with one stone with the A's in Tampa Bay needing new stadiums. Yes, West needs some more teams. It's thin out here. Seattle's travel miles are outrageous. I think the Rays jump to Nashville and Portland and Salt Lake City get expansion teams. What do you think about all this? Uh, if I had to guess today, I think the Rays are sold to another owner in the in the Tampa Bay area, maybe with uh, in in Tampa. Then that's where they land. I don't know where the Athletics are going to land. You know, it, it, I always say that you're not going to believe anything about the Athletics getting a new ballpark until actually <laughs> the ribbon cutting and a groundbreaking ceremony. Uh, I do think that they do need another team out west. Uh, Salt Lake is really interesting. You know, we've talked about Portland. I think it's a done deal that Nashville will get one of the two expansion teams, which would make me happy is someone yeah. who lived for a lot of years. Big music city, music city buster, Montana yep. buster, Vermont buster music. You, you got a lot of monikers. You think Hembo has a lot of monikers? Buster, take a look in the mirror, man. <laughs> All right. That's it for Bleacher Tweets. Thanks, everyone. And that's it for today. That's it for this week's my thanks to Rabbi Hembo Saren Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.